0: I discovered another amphibious person to share with us all. Yesterday on Keaton's show, I was talking about amphibious as somebody who grew up on one side of the tracks and then migrated to the other via higher education. I went to school at Whitman College in Washington State. That place has been called the Princeton of the West. The kids who go there, 93% of them, I think when I went there, were valedictorians. So it's an interesting place where the wealthy people from the Seattle and Portland area mix with the people that Whitman likes to bring in, who they think have potential. I grew up very rough. I grew up as a logger who liked to read and sing. And then the people that I bumped into in public school, one wonderful music teacher named Mr. Ferris, and then other wonderful teachers who who loved my literary bent, they got me writing and expressing myself and learning to love doing that. And then I crashed into Whitman College, a very liberal place, and I came in with very conservative views. So you can see why I'd consider myself to be amphibious. Thomas Green here is equally amphibious and I'll let him explain it to you in his own words. Why Trump is likely to win again. That ought to get the comfy Dems foaming at the mouth. The Bronx of my childhood was a paradise. My street ran parallel to a section of the old Croton aqueduct, by then long disused, which we kids called the Aki. Along its banks grew trees and bushes and wildflowers forming a ribbon of thicket in which we played and through which we hiked. We were always in the street. We learned our games and rhymes by word of mouth from older to younger. We chose our adventures and settled disputes among ourselves. We played stick ball and ring levio and scully red rover and stoop ball and a deliciously sadistic variety of Johnny on a Pony. We raced about on noisy cheap skates with metal wheels. In this urban sanctuary, I grew up safe, loved, happy, and unmistakably working class. Yet somehow I slipped away. I was reared to become an ironworker or electrician but I managed to pass through a posh New England liberal arts college and end up a tech journalist and author. I've worked unsupervised, chiefly from home since the 1990s. Most of my relatives and old neighborhood friends hate people like me, and I don't blame them. Most are lifelong Democrats, yet they voted for Donald Trump and will again, and I can't blame them for that either. Let me explain. My career is the product of an economic revival engineered by the center-right New Democrats of the Clinton era and subsequent administrations. In our deep historical dive a couple of days ago, we got all this figured out, so go back and watch that episode if you want to know what a New Democrat is. I've observed the tech industry for two decades. It's a job, but it's hardly work. I'm a nerd. I like science, technology, and medicine. Right now, I couldn't be more comfortable in lockdown. Amazon supplies my dry goods while a friendly driver brings my groceries. My family and I are safe. No one comes near us without a mask. I control my environment. I choose the people in whose presence I'll work, if any. I can smoke and drink on the job if I please. So long as I honor my deadlines and file clean copy, no one has anything to say about it. Tech's been good to me. This is the part I really relate to. But the guy I was expected to become walks beside me like an imaginary friend I never outgrew. I think about him often, daily if I'm honest. He commutes by bus, encountering irresponsible louts who refuse to mask up. He worries about it, too. His wife, who had earned a second income, is at home supervising their kids. He lives by the lunch buzzer and the punch clock. If there's music where he works, it's amplified by cheap, overdriven speakers and the genre will suit him only by chance. The temperature and ambient noise and lighting were calibrated by industrial psychologists. He can't evade disagreeable co-workers. He's paid far less than a family wage, but he's got no health coverage or pension. He endures daily uncertainty about his family's needs. Why should he not hate me? I would hate me if I were him. He and millions of others failed to thrive in the tech economy, but that was a feature, not a bug. Blue-collar Americans were never going to adapt, despite the assurances of new economy cheerleaders, many of whom were in government. Factories closed and data centers opened. Dot-com outfits traded on nothing more than an online presence, which somehow made sense to us. The New Democrats exalted capital, both tangible and intellectual, and devalued labor as if they'd been old-school establishment Republicans. They fawned over Bill Gates and Eric Schmidt, Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison, Michael Dell and Andy Grove the way one imagines Calvin Coolidge gushing about Rockefellers and Morgans, Vanderbilts and Astors. A high-tech meritocracy would lead America in a better direction, and the need was urgent. The old economy was failing, undeniably. It was time to reformulate it with a progressive veneer. Veneer. No more dirty factories or pollution. NAFTA would ship that mess abroad america would subsist on green energy outsourcing financial services the sacrament of e-commerce and high-tech gadgets a middle-class valhalla governed by upper middle-class trustees from the best schools there would be no need for troublesome relics like labor unions the virtuous nature of technological progress would itself ensure quality jobs and dignity for workers Plentiful consumer credit would replace the family wage and health care benefits. Blue-collar America would suffer collateral damage, but too much was at stake. It would be a necessary sacrifice. And of course, we'd be gentle. We were Democrats and nerds after all. Big tech was hardly the sole disruptor, but the New Democrats fell for and amplified Silicon Valley's specific flavor of empty promises wrapped in technobabble. Delivering the blank of the future, they said. We got E this and I that and smart everything else. It had a wholesome ring and implied that Richard Feynman and Carl Sagan were finally in charge. The progressive, sciency veneer gave cover to other mega-rackets with less compelling legends, enabling them to fleece their workers and consumers, too. Soon, everyone was delivering the blank of the future. The Democratic Party divorced its industrial, unionized base and married its Silicon Valley mistress. It had once believed in collective bargaining. It had once believed that workers were an essential part of a healthy economy and worthy of respect. There was a time when a U.S. president like Harry Truman might entertain a labor activist like Walter Reuter amiably in the Oval Office. But the party had fallen hard for its tech darlings and began to dream of a meritocracy based on steadily increasing knowledge, intelligence, and creativity that would lift us all towards self-realization as we bathed in the restorative glow of our screens. In other words, Democrats put their faith in social vaporware. Old economy workers would be rehabilitated, language implying that they might be more intellectually challenged than unlucky. Euthanized would be a more honest word. The former lower middle class and working classes would listen to two decades of meritocratic cant while their standards of living would fall steadily with no ground floor in sight. They were never a priority. The candidate Barack Obama spoke to blue-collar America. He campaigned on change that would rejuvenate careers and restore dignity. Working Americans in the swing states doubted that Hillary Clinton even knew they existed. They saw Obama as a last hope and supported him enthusiastically in the 2008 primaries and later in the general election, but he soon proved to be a disappointment. He too fell in love with Silicon Valley and Wall Street and neglected the people who needed him most. And they punished him. He won fewer states in 2012 than he had in 2008. People like the alternate me felt cheated by a guy who rocked a Brooks Brothers suit and talked a great game, then gave the tech and finance sectors everything they wanted and more. Educated people from the best schools trusted big tech outfits because educated people from the best schools ran them. Elites imagine each other to be virtuous because they imagine themselves that way. The caption under this photo of Bill Gates is wise and benevolent surely technology giants were understood not as hardy sprouts, but would be treated instead with princess and the P levels of delicacy thanks to a superstitious fear that it might all be brought to grief by say forcing companies with hundreds of billions in share value to tolerate an employees union offer a minimum wage adequate for a decent life, or pay tax proportional to their reliance on public goods. No one bears greater responsibility for the lack of empathy toward old economy workers that led to Donald Trump's victory than big-name tech darlings and the new Democrats who coddled them then openly ridiculed their own voter base, the people Hillary foolishly nicknamed deplorables. That is, the millions of disappointed Obama voters who would happily have voted blue if they'd had confidence that the party would respect them, welcome them, and acknowledge their needs. But the new economy is a gated community, shut firmly to them, whose most strenuous boosters have been the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations. Old-school, working-class Democrats are unwelcome in the party they built. No one wants them tracking mud through the salon. Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in the swing states the same way Barack Obama had, by characterizing her as disdainful toward blue-collar Americans. It was a potent message among those who once had seen decent wages in return for honest work, lately reduced to Walmart greeters and Uber drivers. Humiliated by a labor market in which they had nothing to trade, The former working class understood that they also had nothing to lose. Liberal democracy and its supporting institutions shed their veneer of sanctity when dead-end employees can aspire only to dead-end management gigs. Call them associates and technicians all you want. They know who they've become and what others think of them. They are why Trump won in the swing states. He was propelled to victory by disillusioned Obama voters. They gleefully chanted, lock her up, not because they thought Hillary was an actual criminal, although I think Hillary's an actual criminal, but because they knew what her election would bring them, four or eight more years of economic and social stagnation to top off the 20 they'd already been through. They elected Donald once and they will try to again. He is scornful and vicious. He despises openly. He snarls and barks. He will make a pig's breakfast of everything he touches. But here's the thing everyone misses. Educated elites will feel the hardship he causes more acutely than the millions of workers who have already adapted to pittance wages, dead-end careers, and chronic disrespect. They've endured two decades of it. They can cope. They're betting that liberal snowflakes like me can't. Trump will not be defeated by educating voters, by exposing his many foibles and inadequacies. Highlighting what's wrong with him is futile. His supporters didn't elect him because they mistook him for a competent administrator or a decent man. They're angry, not stupid. Trump is an agent of disruption, indeed, of revenge. Unfortunately, the coronavirus pandemic has positioned him as a tragic force multiplier on a scale that few could have predicted, and the result is verging on catastrophic. Still, that might not be enough to prevent his re-election. Workers now sense that economic justice, a condition in which labor and capital recognize and value each other, is permanently out of reach. The class war is over and it was an absolute rout. Insatiable parasites control everything now and even drain us gratuitously as if exacting reparations for the money and effort they spent taming us. The economy itself and the institutions protecting it must be attacked and actually crippled to get the attention of the smug patricians in charge. Two decades of appealing to justice, proportion, and common decency have yielded nothing. I'd rather not see four more years of Donald, but I understand the impulse to use him as a cat's paw. Joe Biden is only moderately attractive to swing voters. He's got long-standing ties to the financial and consumer credit rackets, and many of his senior campaign people are former lobbyists, industry flacks, and banking alums. He's a new Democrat at heart, too much like Hillary and too little like the Barack Obama we thought we were voting for in 2008. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders appealed to the 2016 swing voters who voted for Obama in 2008 and for Trump in 2016, not Biden, and not the domesticated Obama of 2020 who will be campaigning for him. I doubt that Obama can draw enough of his old swing voters back to the Democratic Party. They were his constituency once, but he let them go, and now his transformation into a new economy aristocrat is complete. He could even be a liability to Biden, who seems more down-to-earth than today's Obama. Let them eat quinoa. The new Democratic Party and the flashy economic colossus controlling it are a seductive pair. We saw this as Obama spoke on July 30th, 2020, eulogizing the late US Representative John Lewis. The former president and Columbia University and Harvard Law School graduate promised us that one day, When we do finish that long journey toward freedom, when we do form a more perfect union, whether it's years from now or decades, or even if it takes another two centuries, John Lewis will be a founding father of that fuller, fairer, better America. Thus did our first black president signal that he might condone two more centuries of racial and social injustice, so long as the meritocracy continues to treat him and his family right. Nailed it. He and other high-minded elites are thinking fine thoughts and beaming positive energy to ordinary Americans from the metaphorical gated communities swaddling the rich progressive class. No uninformed weasel will dare kneel on any of their necks, we can be certain. There will be no eviction notices, no local food pantries, no paltry unemployment checks for them. These people have no clue what's going on in the workaday neighborhoods of American cities and in our towns and rural communities, and they'll be pleased to keep it that way. Why should the victims of the new economy not despise the system and the people tending it so intensely that they would vote Republican again? Why would they not hope that Donald will cause so much damage that America will be forced to make a fresh start? For them, stability equals stagnation while chaos might bring opportunities. Elections are decided in the swing states. We know how Massachusetts and Mississippi will vote, The battle will take place in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Colorado, and it will be decided by Obama-to-Trump voters. They haven't forgotten that, during two decades' time, Democrats exported their jobs and rewarded them with gigs. The question is, will their resentment overcome their reluctance? They might fear Donald's destructive potential, but they'll be inclined to vote for someone who has been wrecking the political and economic system that cut them down from working class to working poor with no hope of escape. Donald has a solid chance of winning. Now, before I read you the stunning conclusion of this stunning article, I have to say, the Democrats are totally and wholly lost. For the swing voters to get their attention, they'd have to pay them more than their donors are paying them. Until we can actually separate the billions from the billionaires, there is no hope of ever redeeming the Democratic Party. When they smell money, that's where they go. They'll never go back. They'll never go back to the hardworking swing voters. The key thing to remember here is that they don't care if they lose. They don't care if they have any voters. If all they have is the wine track suburbanites, they'll be just fine with that. They don't care if they ever get a majority in either house. They don't even care if they never get anyone in the Oval Office again. All they care about is keeping the meritocrats in power. So this sage-sounding advice I'm gonna have to reject in advance. The only hope for any of us is if the Democratic Party is completely demolished. But let's see what Thomas says. For Democrats, the only path forward is behind. The party must welcome and actually represent employees whose lives and labor and services are valued as essential contributions to society. Yeah, that's not going to happen. The former working class won't be satisfied until they see Bill and Hillary, Barack and Joe enact an auto-da-fe through the streets of Washington, accompanied by a dreary huddle of bankers, VCs, bond traders, and tech CEOs in quest of a genuine catharsis in which the pain of their guilt and self-loathing swells and burns and finally grows so unbearable that they literally curse themselves and beg to be forgiven. Yeah, that sounds pretty likely, Thomas. If candidates Biden and Harris and the wider Democratic Party fail to recognize and renounce the worst elements of the high-tech, financialized new economy they're in bondage to and neglect to reach out to Obama to Trump swing voters with genuine understanding, compassion, and respect, not to mention actual regulatory solutions, Donald might well be elected again, exactly as he was in 2016, by swing state Democrats who have had enough. I urge you to find Thomas on Medium. I always link to my articles that I read to you. If you go to that article, if you're logged into Medium, you can clap for it. You can give it lots of claps. Not just one clap, just keep clicking on the clap button because this is an excellent article. Thomas, like me, is behind the paid firewall on Medium, so if you're registered for Medium and you read the articles, he gets paid. I think you get three free articles a month so definitely make this one of them if you get a chance.